This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. A great way to support the library is by visiting the library shop, where you can find thousands of items for book lovers, like library totes, mugs, and magnets, boasting quotes from famous writers. Visit shop.nypl.org and use the code PODCAST for a 10% discount. And remember, every purchase supports the New York Public Library. Welcome to the New York Public Library podcast, where each week we bring you conversations with world-renowned authors, artists, and thinkers, recorded in front of a live audience in New York City. For this week's episode, we're bringing you a conversation between two Nigerian authors whose works include plays, novels, poetry, essays, and more. Chris Abani is known as an international voice on humanitarianism, art, ethics, and our shared political responsibility. Wole Suyinka won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1986 and has received accolades for his work in writing and advocating for human rights. The two recently sat down at the library for a conversation on the intersections between art, writing, activism, and politics. You came. It's raining and you came. Well, thank you very much. Welcome, Wale Shoinka. That's Yoruba. It's a sophisticated language. Oh, he thinks it's Yoruba. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it started. <laughs> I'm teasing him. Uh, but we thank the library for, for hosting this event uh, and Paul. Um, but I'm, I'm really so happy that they could get this tapestry of Trump done so quickly. <laughs> and <put up>. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I guess we're all in recovery. Not yet. Uh, I'm, I'm Nigerian. I mean, you know, I move into recovery very quickly. So, but, um, so I thought I'd start off the evening um, not by asking you about the green card, Taryn, but, but mostly, you know, one of, one of the things you've talked about is always this sort of notion of shared humanity and how things impact everyone in the world in this way. So what do you think about... America's own very own Idi Amin. Well, one thing which I always like to remind myself about is that um, um, I believe very much in democracy, and um, I think democracy should be taken to the absolute limit. Right. Yeah, we must all bow right. before democracy. Some of us may also choose to bow out. <laughs> uh, in connection, and so the uh, comment of the green card right. uh, was also a gesture and a right. promise of bowing out, out in deference to okay. democracy. democracy. Mm. And I still stand by it. Well, good. Uh, don't all, <laughs> because I won't see you as often. So, um, but uh, so I mean, um, sort of in this moment now, uh, I think. The notions of the, so I was thinking a lot about your work, always, you know, uh, such a profound influence. And though you never state it, uh, you always allude to a certain kind of futurism in your work, a certain kind of you sort of you worked uh, a lot of your work has been addressing continentally and, and across the world very difficult contemporary moments. Um, and you respond to them very rapidly and very expansively, but it always seems like uh, you don't just address the moment, that you address the notion of a continued moment. And so with all this, this, what is definitely going to be a shift in the world, Brexit, this, other kinds of uh, uh, still unknown traumas, what do you think about 
futurism for Africa, what kind of Africa, if we start there, maybe, and start moving outwards, do you envision for your grandchildren, linguistically, politically, hopefully? Uh, as it should be, we all have different dreams about the, our environment, mm -hmm. the small environment, the large environment. And uh, sometimes I even ask myself, when I especially when I encounter a question like this, uh, I begin by saying, what anyway is Africa? I mean, what, what is it? Is it uh, just a landmass which is surrounded by water? For me, I, uh, the answer is very simple. Uh, Africa is the definition of the people who inhabit it. Right. And for me, humanity comes first. And when you talk about the future of Africa, I think immediately of, um, in a negative way, uh, when things you know, sort of uh, get rocky, uh, does Africa have a future? Then when right. others say, answer, uh, no, doesn't have a future, then I get angry. Right. And I say, <laughs> you don't have a future. <laughs> so I think we are very partisan. Right. You know, right. internally, yes, we criticize mm -hmm. quite a lot. We're dissatisfied. Mm -hmm. We all had dreams of uh, Africa. We imagine in my time when I was very young and went uh, across the Atlantic to study, I was convinced, together with my uh, colleagues, that we were the Renaissance people. We are the ones going to show the rest of the world. Right. And, and of course, that meant we represented the spirit of Africa. But of course, so many negative things have happened over and over again. Right. One step forward, six steps backwards, leadership problems, diseases, child soldiers, a lot. What is the future? I think we're going through the same self-realization process that others have done, you know, in other continents. Only I'm afraid ours is taking a little bit long. too long for my temperament. Right. Mm -hmm. That's, uh, but so, yeah, but I, I still want to, I think, so... My, the generation you're speaking of sort of it was also my father's generation. They, um, for instance, my father uh, came, went to Oxford, came back in '57, uh, and then ran for was one of the first members of Parliament in the First Republic. And I sort of remember that there was this moment, moment where what it meant to be, just even Nigerian, was was sort of being pursued in a, it, what one could think of a modernist context. Politicians actually wrote books to try to figure out what they thought about what was going on. There was all the hope of Pan-Africanism that was seething everywhere. And fast forward now to the African Union. Do you, th what kind of ideology or philosophy or even uh, one would almost ask sort of pedagogy do we need to kind of start to think about continentally mm -hmm. to re-envision Pan-Africanism away from sort of what may have been an overly romantic gesture into much more concrete uh, workable terms. Well, the continent, first of all, has got to get its act right to even dream of Pan-Africanism these days. But Pan-Africanism, the idea of Pan-Africanism, was a strong force in our development. And that meant that we didn't see uh, Black America, uh, the Caribbean. We didn't see them as uh, outsiders. Right. We felt they were part and parcel of the family. Right. And for those of us who you know, studied history, we uh, did study the, the Pan-Africanist movement under different names, right. all the way back to 
the 19th century, right. almost at one stage reel off the various congresses which took place in Liverpool, in Hull, uh, London, the Gaviette movement here, Du Bois, etc., etc. And we saw this great concourse of black peoples coming together after centuries and the trauma of dispersal and reasserting themselves as one people. We were very, very proud of that notion. I mean, we, uh, in fact, we took it for granted. We took it as a, as a mission. Okay. Anything that took place uh, on any part of Africa, in any part of Africa, whether you're talking about the Kenyan liberation movement, mm -hmm. apartheid, mm -hmm. uh, South Africa. Uh, we felt that this was also a, a movement towards the ultimate uh, concourse of black peoples. Right. In fact, uh, we felt in Nigeria that our mission was to go south mm -hmm. and liberate uh, right. uh, black people. I mean, it was south something Africa. which we took for granted. That right. was what we were meant for. Right. And then the problems began, of course, internal problems, the struggle for power, the treacheries, the alienation of leadership. Pan-Africanism, in fact, sometimes I think had its, uh, a, uh, drew its last breath uh, in Tanzania, ironically. Oh, wow. Yes, when uh, an attempt was made to really reinstate the spirit of Pan-Africanism. Right. Was this by Nyerere? Hmm? By Nyerere? No, well, he contributed yeah. um, by succumbing to certain pressures right. from rogue uh, leaders right. in other parts of Africa. But Pan-Africanism was never meant for governments. The mm. origin and the spirit of Pan-Africanism was a movement outside governance. Trade unionists, students, professionals, technocrats, writers, etc., etc. This was Pan-Africanism. In Tanzania, that conference, it became a tussle between two personalities, yeah. Sekuture and uh, Leopold Senghor. It became a personality issue yeah. with uh, women supporters wearing. Um, Clo uh, clothing with the pictures of their various, you know, one level Senghor, the other Sekuture, hectoring, you know, uh, and hooting at uh, one another. And of course, progressive movements like the New Jewel movements, the leaders were prevented from attending. In my own case, I was there as an observer, really. Right. And uh, even so, my government was so scared right. at the sent. A message to Nyerere that I shouldn't be allowed to speak. Yeah, I, I met Nyerere after uh, some years, years later, yeah. and we discussed it. We met in Portugal after he retired, and we discussed it, but I already knew that. Yeah. But I still managed to have a voice in some of the committees and so on. Yeah. So anyway, the point is that it became an ego trip. Right. In the real, the real people, the trade unionists, the people I wanted to meet and whom I thought wanted to meet other people of that ilk, many of them were not allowed to speak. Right. Uh, so, efforts have been made to resuscitate that, right. and I think the cultural root, or route, as they say in this country, <laughs> right. root, we say in right. Anglo, uh, <laughs> the cultural root is probably the, the most effective, because right. that is not so much subject to the whims and caprices of government. Right. Yeah.
Right. But but there was a time when the OAU and Pan-Africanism Pan really seemed, so there was an organization of African Union and then uh, th this sort of almost, um, one could say a movement of the people seemed almost to kind of be blending together before the Biafran War, roughly around that time. And then it seems like after that, everything just... Well, at, you're probably talking about the effort the, uh, which produced, where did they meet now? It wasn't Aburi. in Ethiopia. Yes, Aburi Accord, right? Uh -huh. yeah. Where some progressive moves were made, like instituting the peer review right. uh, panel in which heads of state would meet and actually talk frankly to one another. That was the idea right. behind closed doors, right. of course, behind right. closed doors. Uh, and I think that had a small effect. Uh, it had a small effect, but not a very lasting one. Otherwise, why are we still where yeah, we are right. today? Uh, this was the younger, the new uh, generation of uh, Pan-Africanists who felt that there was still something to it and felt that by uh, bringing leadership closer to the, the rest of the world, the rest yeah. of us, that uh, Pan-Africanism, uh, the spirit of it might be resuscitated. But I always believe that, for instance, the economic uh, alliances, economic arrangements between Africa and Africa and the diaspora right. uh, is one way of asserting this identity and right. uh, an identity that at least could be used to bargain right. uh, with uh, the rest of the world right. who are winning pride. But ideology also had a lot to do with it. Right. You know, the, Leftist, we were fighting the Cold War. We were surrogate fighters right. for the Cold War. That when right. instead of minding our own business, right. we were interfering. You know, taking sides in the quote-unquote ideological war between capitalism and, uh, and socialism. socialism, between yeah. the West and the East, and so on. Right. And the brains of many of our, I'm sorry to say this, our intellectuals got scrambled, <laughs> right. you know, in, in, during the fisticuffs that went on between America right. and the Soviet Union and, Soviet and Union. Russia and, uh, and China, China right. and the yeah. whole lot. It's yes. uh, yeah. it, 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 too much phony uh, uh, radicalism went on there. You know, right. many leaders thought once they wore the Mao jacket, <laughs> they were now socialists. <laughs> and it's... Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that, that, uh, that's actually interesting. So then that, that leads me to where we are now with, with this notion of an African Union. Do you really, do you think there's any, any way we can subscribe to it? Any reason for us to be hopeful for it? Anything we can do now? Well, I don't use words, fortunately, like hopeful or optimistic, uh, or like I say. That's why you don't win elections. <laughs> <laughs> Well, see where they are now, the optimists in America. Look at the, where, where they find themselves today. Uh, 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 and those of us who were also, uh, we allowed the optimism to rub off on, on, us. on us and see where we are today. Exactly. But you know, it's, uh, while we're on that subject, it's a good thing. Right. It's a good thing for Africans. Right. Because... I'm hoping that it brings us back right. to the the basic virtue of self-reliance. Right. Uh, that we shouldn't. Um, that maybe it'll teach both leadership and followers uh, 
the, the very important lesson of, uh, of holding firm mm -hmm. to internal solutions or internal right. problems and right. so on and so forth. Right. Knowing that even when it looks as if things are changing, even when, let us say, the West, for instance, has come to realize that uh, the so-called uh, rulership by the strong man right. is passé, even right. though it looks as if the West has come to that realization, the reality is such that right. you know, this you know, right. that in many instances, they're still looking for the strong man right. to hold Africa together, right. and that crashed ages ago. Right. So when the, all of us are hoping for at least a comparatively progressive world leadership, right. and it blows up in our faces, right. we're thrown back to our own resources. And I think that's not a bad thing. Right. You can see again the optimist, the optimist. in me creeping yes. up. Hmm? Kicking up, yeah. and uh, dangerously so. Dangerous. <laughs> well, that optimist in, in you actually brings, sort of, I want to start segueing a little bit uh, into into the person. So I, I've been teaching some of your work and teaching it under this, this rubrics of the poetics of engagement. What, what could that be? Because there is a part of you that's just a citizen. There's a part of you that is a bit of a rabble-rouser. There is a part of you that's the writer. But something that seems to underpin it all is that any form of injustice rubs you very wrong. And that supersedes any other allegiances you seem to have. So in a country like Nigeria that was divided quite deeply, and maybe still is, I'm, I'm trying to be optimistic, by sort of vast ethnic differences, uh, you've always inserted yourself into conversations and asked for us to be better in this kind of human ways. I don't think there's any writer probably alive who's been more involved in everything from uh, trying to get Butuzeli and Mandela on the same page mm -hmm. to, to get in the, uh, the Nigerian Biafran war squared away. Uh, one of my questions is, as a, as a person, and it, because it spreads through your work, but what is the core thing that drives you? Is it a belief in, in something enduringly human uh, that you're trying to quantify, or is it, is it something simpler than that, something just simply about what we can see to be right or wrong. I, I give you an instance that tore my family apart a little bit. The issue of Ken Sarawiwa and the kangaroo court of Abacha that destroyed this man's life. Um, and you know that at the time in Nigeria, there are all, all these kind of old resentments seething up. And I remember your voice articulating clearly across the board, whatever old resentments you have, treat that in a different kind of mm -hmm. venue, what's happening here is an indictment of all of us, right? Mm -hmm. So what drives you? What drives you? Um, well, uh, it's very, sometimes I say, maybe it's something I ate as a child when, <laughs> <laughs> when no one was looking. Too much hot pepper. When, when, no, when no one was looking. <laughs> but really, and I, I've said this a uh, number of occasions, and people always laugh, and I'm sure I'll get a laugh again today, but really, I am real, truly, well and truly, a, glut, a glutton for tranquility. <laughs> That's, I warn you. I warn you. Yeah. I warn you. I love your approach to that. <laughs> and I would rather, in other words, given a choice, mm -hmm. I would rather not be involved the way I am in many things. Mm -hmm. But ironically, I think it's because I also need... Uh, 
a tranquil state of mind mm -hmm. to be able to enjoy mm -hmm. that state of tranquility right. that I respond right. to what strikes me as inimical to that condition of tranquility. In other words, that's where I want to get back to. Right. And the problem with me is that if something is something grates on me, uh, and you can call it injustice or whatever, um, I have no peace of mind. I do not have that peace of mind which enables me to truly enjoy what I want. Right. And so I say, oh, let me take care of business and I'll get back. Right. And of right. course, that, that triggers of an eye, becomes right. a chain reaction, and it goes on and on. If I stay long enough here, for instance, <laughs> I know I will join in a revolution. So that, <laughs> that's, that's why it's better I go home tomorrow. I go home <laughs> and state my revolution <laughs> there and get out of everybody's way. I yeah. think yes. <laughs> no, but but it's a, it's a, it's a paradox, and I understand right. that it's a contradiction. But then, aren't we all contradictory in so many ways? Yeah. Uh, so that while you're looking for peace, you yeah. find yourself constantly uh, pulling wahala by right. the by the foot. By the foot. Yeah. Yeah. And in any, what could one have done? What other course could one have taken in the case of Ken Sarawiwa? Right. Uh, I think uh, those very, that's what we see, the obvious, the big picture. Right. But every day, every day, there are smaller, yes. smaller, little, little micro right. pieces of injustice which, right. which just threaten your, menace your peace of mind. Right. You have to deal with it. Right. Yeah. Right. That, that's 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 um, that's interesting. So, among your comp many many kind of webs of um, obsession, um, are sort of these ways in which we we always kind of pitched in. Um, and I'm just uh, looking at some of the notes I had. But you always considered primarily through a kind of one political lens. But you want to say that again? You're to... you're largely seen through one kind of political lens, which is mm -hmm. sort of statesmanship in a certain mm -hmm. way. But I know how deeply invested you are in the environment, in ecology, um, and things like not just education, but gender, religion, the indigenous religions, the psyches uh, of how things get disrupted, imperialist notions of self versus any other kind of holistic ideas of self, and of course, literature. And, and not only literature that engages in these political ways, but literature that it also manages to have fun, manages to laugh at itself, manages um, to, or certainly the plays that allow themselves to be staged, even though political in ways that, I remember the line and the jewel from, the, or even the Jero plays, very political, very, but, but also not forgetting that there's also a sense of humor that goes along with that. How, how do you start to pull all these webs that you obsess about together in, in ways that allow you to kind of, um, create a coherent body. You've created such a co coherent body of work. I'm wondering how, how you're able to do that. Well, first of all, the material is constantly tugging at you. Mm -hmm. They'll be always, always tugging, provoking you, mm -hmm. provoking your imagination, uh, provoking your, um, your instinct towards reinterpretation, mm -hmm. interpretation. Take, uh, you spoke about religion, and uh, my mind goes immediately to a play like uh, Death and the King's Horseman. Right. All right, there was I, minding my own business, uh, when I, uh, I was a fellow in Cambridge uh, University in England, 
And I, I was a fellow at Churchill College. You all know Winston Churchill, the British bulldog, you know, <laughs> the, the symbol, in fact, of colonialism, imperialism, and so on. And I'd be going down for my coffee or something, whatever, and going down the stairs every day was a huge bust of this, you know, in many ways admirable person, by the way, you know, uh, Winston Churchill, but being conscious of what uh, external imperators meant for us on the African continent, there was a deep, deep resentment of that, of that, uh, of that bust. And I had this feeling today, which I tr tried to keep under control. If I could just give it a push, and send it shattering, smithereens all over the place. But uh, I controlled it. <laughs> I, I controlled it. But then it did something. And this is where mythology you yeah. know, interacts with um, politics, if you like. Uh, even satire sometimes. It did something. It triggered off uh, my long-buried awareness of a of a, a passage of uh, in Nigeria in Oyo in Oyo State, where the the sort of the ritual which was evoked when um, a king the king died was that his companion must die with, with him and not not murdered not killed not suicide but he was just supposed to die and accompany the soul of this um, uh, his king to the other world and uh, a district officer in in real history you know interrupted that process of the ritual suicide of the Eleshin, the companion, the king's companion. And now you see, there is Winston Churchill, the represent, uh, representative of the colonial ethos, if you like, and, uh, interrupted this, uh, this suicide, uh, this ritual death. And I began thinking about the meaning of death and how death uh, is sort of uh, arbitrated in so many forms, in so many cultures, not just in mine, uh, in different times. Uh, nothing to say when approved of Richard. So if I'm the king's companion, when it's time to die with him, I scoot. You're going to find me on the other side of the border. I but know. I was fascinated. Very recently. <laughs> We have been trying to summon him back. <laughs> I was fascinated by right. this right. whole idea. Right. And so this play, which is only partly political, emerged, Death right. and the King's Horseman. Right. It went on and on in my head for quite a while, almost, I think, maybe as a substitute for pushing down the, the, statue. the bust. The the bust yeah. And eventually, uh, it had gestated for quite right. a while, right. and I think uh, that play was written in record time, right. but only because it had been going on and been formulating the dialogue in my head and so right. on. And through that, I went backwards to explore the Yoruba notion of three worlds, right. the world of the living, the ancestor, and the unborn, and right. how this notion sort of uh, mitigates the 
pain of death or the, right. the, 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 the dislike, let's just put it, the, the horror of death, just understanding, accepting the notion of three worlds inter, interacting and the world of uh, what I call the, uh, the space of transition, the energies of transition and so on. And this went on on so many levels. Right. So it wasn't something which I set out to right. do to uh, sort of uh, interweave the the politics of that period with the mythology of that period. No, the material was already there. Right. But of course, it set me trying to extract this meaning, this quote-unquote wisdom, or at least right. acceptance right. of something which many of us cringe at. Right. And that's how the play uh, was produced. And um, if you go through many of my um, uh, work, whether it's poetry, for instance, I tend to explore, and don't forget, I'm a Yoruba, and I, I, I was raised um, in a world of uh, multiple deities. Right. Uh, and those deities were not remote deities, but deities uh, which existed for people, lived among right. people whose histories, in fact, uh, very often conflated the right. human, the mortal, etc., etc. And so I've always been uh, intrigued by that kind of uh, intimacy right. with the supernatural, right. uh, with the metaphysical world. Right. And it creeps in naturally from time to time into right. my uh, poetry. Sometimes I celebrate it, sometimes I excoriate it, you know, right. by attaching a malevolent deity to some nasty politician like that one, for instance, right. you know, <laughs> and, uh, and right. that's how, I think that's how creativity works. Doesn't right. it work for you that way? Mm -hmm. it, it does in a certain mm -hmm. way, and I, but I also think it's, it's sort of the, there is an idea definitely within, within traditional uh, West African cultures that isn't prevalent here. Here it seems to be this or that. Whereas mm. for us, it's this and that, a kind mm. of simultaneity. Because mm. even, even in the Yoruba word for heaven, it doesn't really mean heaven, it just means the invisible world. And it's sort of simultaneous with, the, with this world. And so uh, that's a fascinating thing you do. But, but beyond all of that mythology, and, and the ways in which Death and the King's Horseman has been sort of looked at as colonial and, and indigenous conflict, it really starts to become a play mm -hmm. or, or work about human beings mm -hmm. and more in a much more complicated way about certain kinds of masculinities and the notions of duty, uh, the notions. So like even with, with the election, not, it ends up not being able to commit suicide because he delays too long, but not from cowardice. Mm -hmm. It's almost like it's the bacchanal of the world he doesn't want to to let go of and so again your work always manages to come back to this these deeper much simpler human questions with all that layer mm. but um but speaking about pushing over busts i'm gonna you know because because your life is is it's, it's sort of like I, I often think if i had to, if i were to write your life before your memoirs came out for instance nobody in hollywood would believe me but you once went on a hunt to steal back the mask stolen from Nigeria by the colonials from museums, did you not? And you were within arms grad of it. I'd like to... <laughs> it's, it's, all of us suffer from, thank goodness, from at least a little dosage of race pride, race consciousness, yes, yes. and uh, as, which moves to assertiveness. Now, I, let me tell you what he's talking about. He's calling me a robber. <laughs> this, the others were the robbers. That's There's right. There's this marvelous uh, bust called Uriolukun, 
bronze piece, one of these beautiful classic, classical sculptures uh, of the Yoruba, and uh, of enormous significance to, to Yoruba mythology, generally spirituality, the coming in being of the, of the Yoruba, both through the deities and through um, heroes, if you like. And uh, Frobenius, I think, was the guilty party. He was the one. Yeah, yes. He was the one who stole this, and he replaced it with a, with a, with a fake. And that fake sat in the museum in Ife, where I taught. And I would go to the museum, I would look at this ugly thing, <laughs> and I knew, I said, this is not Oriolokum. Fortunately, there were both drawings and pictures and photographs of the original. So how can this thing sit in the, um, in the museum? And Ilefe itself is considered to be not only the cradle of the Yoruba people, but the cradle of the of black people everywhere. In fact, the cradle of the world. And here is this um, this uh, this deity, this demiurge, if you like, this fake this fake representation sitting there for people to look at, and so this ugly thing was, I mean, is supposed to represent the spirit of the Yoruba. So. I was kind of hurt about it. And so when eventually we heard that the authentic bust was actually in, within Africa, in uh, Senegal, in Dakar, uh -huh. in a private museum, well, it was inevitable that we should make an effort to <laughs> retrieve it. As one does. And, um, <laughs> Unfortunately, it was not quite the original. It was a, a mold from the original. But at least we now knew that the original still existed somewhere. And so the trail went on. There were aspects of this thing I, didn't, I haven't written about, which I don't intend to. Uh, um, and until finally, I, I think we tracked down where it actually was in Burlington archives. And uh, and then at that point, I think word had got around. Uh, there were some robbers floating <laughs> all over the place. I wonder it disappeared from display in the museum. But it was one of the most uh, sweet, sour, uh, bittersweet adventures that I ever had. Right. We actually prepared for it. We did a lot of research to make sure that what was in Dakar was the original thing. And the entire university was in conspiracy over right. it. It wasn't just me. Don't right. put everything on my head. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In conspiracy, we thought we had to bring it back. Right. And um, but unfortunately, but we know where it is still is still today. You know, right. yeah. so maybe the next generation will go on. Uh, the next one. The next generation. No, uh, well, yeah, next generation. That's their business. They can yeah. negotiate. In fact, when the uh, the movement for reparations <laughs> heated up. Oreo Loco was one of the inspirations for my proposal that, look, we talk about reparations for slavery, reparations for uh, imperialism, dumb, uh, colonialism, etc., for despoilation, etc. Let's do a deal. Let all the European uh, robbers return all the artifacts they stole from Africa. And we'll call it quits. We'll call, we'll call it, it quits. <laughs> and uh, I still maintain that. <laughs> there were many takers, I assume.
Yeah, there uh, were many people who were taking the deal, right? Yeah, well, yeah, 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 yeah I don't, I don't. It's, uh, it's. Uh, but, th but you, you've been making me talk. Well, yes. Yeah, so now let me ask you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that beautiful book of yours, the Angel of the uh, the Flames, the, flame, the which, Virgin which of Flames, for me a masterpiece. Yeah. Um, Thank you. Tell me about. Um, I, I got I involved wanna, in an I just, argument. I just want to stop the presses and. You what? I'm going to stop the. I just want this to be recorded for it. You said it was a masterpiece. <laughs> yes, I did. I do. I do consider it a masterpiece. Yes. Yes. And uh, uh, the argument, this argument, people, um, critics will say, oh, uh, this is not really an African novel. Right. And I say, what on earth are you talking about? This, the imagination in this, first of all, is very clearly and distinctly African. Even though the characters were, uh, were non-Africans, except one token of I wonder why you bothered to put that token, to put the token Africa African. in there, uh, you know. But the the life, the the tumult, and the uh, the multi-level uh, awareness of existence in that novel for me actually uh, was not too dissimilar to what you spoke about and what I've just spoken about in terms of the the merging of. Uh, of religion, or at least right. spirituality, spirituality. With, with raw, real raw, uh, gritty, uh, human, mortal uh, right. relationships, and so on and so forth. And uh, maybe you like to talk about that. Change. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'll talk that. for a change. Let me talk. Um, <laughs> but I, I think for me too, I, this idea of the of the of the gritty mortal, mm -hmm. uh, sort of the no, the notion of the profane and the sacred simultaneous. Mm -hmm. Again, I grew up I grew up in a small fishing town, I should go. And my grand uncle was was a Dibia, what you would call Onishegon in, in Yoruba. And so I grew up doing rituals with him, and he would be in the middle of offering, say, an animal to to un, to a god, and uh, someone would interrupt him with a conversation, and he would stop what he's doing, have this conversation, and then go back to it. And in subsequent years now, like in the, you know, I, I sort of inhabit that religion of Ifa, and I've seen Babalawo in the middle of a ritual. Their phone rings, and they they kind of they hold they're halfway through offering a goat, and then they're like, eh, Claude. Um and so and I've watched I've watched Westerners have this kind of shocked relationship to that, mm -hmm. but I think for me what it has always been is, uh, and I I think for, I keep referring to the Euro because I, I have found. Uh, a much more intact language for what I, I've been thinking about. And one of the things that fascinates me, I think, is the Yoruba understanding of consciousness as it, as it embodies humanness. That there is, there is Ori, Orinu, Oriode, Akbarinu, uh, what you might think of Igbiambe. So you have that kind of array of the head. Uh, there, there are parts of the brain that I was, I was just in a conversation with a neuroscientist who was very interested in the idea of like Iwaju, Atori, Ipako, and all the sort of the ways in which different parts, the frontal lobe, all, all have traditional names. But also that consciousness is centered in the body. And so breath, Amy, has a distinct consciousness. Livers have, so the notion that, that and it's really not dissimilar to what modern scientists started to think about, but the problem, I think, I have always sort of grown up with this notion of simultaneity, um, mm -hmm, where mm -hmm. things are not, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter whether you believe it or not, it is just part of the experience. My, my aunt will come back from the market with tomatoes and tell me to throw them away, and mm -hmm. I'd say, why? So I bought them from a ghost. 
and it never occurred to me to question her. Um, so I started to really think about when I when I moved to America. Uh, one of the fascinating things about America is the level of lying, you know, the self the self delusionality that goes on. You know, where Nigerians are no better, at, but we know the game. You understand? As we say in Nigeria, "Koneman die, Koneman um, But here, there's sort of this, these pockets of illusion and delusions, and uh, so I started as I began to uh, sort of assimilate myself here, began to think of several things. One was, how do I recolonize the West? So you notice that I've been writing books that one is set in Las Vegas, where I, I conflate Johannesburg and Las Vegas, uh, Los Angeles and Lagos. Mm -hmm. um, so literally, I'm, re I'm, I'm reclaiming America one book at a time and Africanizing them as much as I can. Mm -hmm. We send the bees, the Africanized bees, now mm -hmm. we're sending the, the books. But so it's really, it's really that, that idea. Uh, and when I live here, when I walk through streets here, I'm always amazed at what people's cognitive dissonance erases for them and how I'm unable to erase that. So things that seem so fantastical. Um, I have a man who cross-dresses as the Virgin Mary, for instance. And I remember I, was a, I had done a reading, and it was in a sports bar. And there was a big t screen TV on. And uh, 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 this show that they call Entertainment Tonight was on behind me, but with the volume muted. And someone told me that they can't believe this idea of a man in a, in a wedding dress pretending to be the Virgin Mary. And at that moment, Dennis Rodman was getting married, this big basketball player with tattoos, and he was wearing the wedding dress, and his fiancée was wearing the tuxedo. And I was like, you know, I can't even make this stuff up. So I am fascinated in all those ways by, by the relationship between high art and low art, popular culture, uh, and what we might think of as more mediated cultures. But just this, this lushness. But I stole a lot of ideas from you. I mean, in The Virgin of Flames, uh, this was when Bush was in power. There's a whole scene where the character commissions a piñata of George Bush mm -hmm. and proceeds to like beat it into pieces, you know. So I'm, I'm just offering you advice for your parties. Get Trump piñatas and, and just have at it. You know, it's a lot of fun. But um, so it, it's really the impulse was sort of this question about longing and nostalgia because what mm -hmm. seemed like a token character began to represent, I think, in a, in a way... Not so much the notion of the middle passage, but a current, mm -hmm. what happens when a current African moves here, who is educated in very, very Western ways, but still carries this, what, what I can only call as a, a sort of an existential mm -hmm. West African. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And how does that get mediated and what is lost and what mm -hmm. is mourned for? So that, that kind of um, post-apocalyptic setting of the self mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it's something, uh, just by the way, you can also put this in your pocket. Um, has any attempt been made to film it? I like to see that. I, I, pick, I see it very often as a, as, as a, as a film. As a, um, let me know when it starts. I, I will I, definitely I, I, let you know. Yeah, I, no, maybe, um, yeah, I'll, do the it, script for, I'll do the script for you. Oh, good. I take that back. No, <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. I'm definitely, well, because I say it's funny too, because there was, a, there was a question from the audience about Death and the King's Horseman being, uh, uh, being a movie, and I'm actually working on that, on yeah, that script right, right, right now. Right now. Mm -hmm. um, so you, I do yours, you do mine. Mm. All, right. All right. Okay. Um, but I think part of it, you, you, you've been a, not only, not only do you write plays, and I think we can segue into theater, so I want to talk about theater and film in a minute, but this idea, um, 
where the imagination is so visual sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and you mm-hmm. talk about it, you say it much more beautifully, but you're drawn to theater because of all the, the multiple dimensionality of it. Mm-hmm. There's sound, there's movement, there's dance, there's text, there's voice. There's also stage and imagined walls and all of that. Um, so no one, has, they buy they buy the book, but they, they, it's too, I think it's too set for a director to get into. But mm-hmm. tell me, um, what do you think about contemporary African theater, if you think there is still much mm. of that, or if you think film in all its exciting mediums on the continent mm. has kind of eroded that in a way. And I don't just yeah. mean Nollywood, I mean the more. Ah, thank you. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, yeah, there is film and there is Nollywood. Right. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. <clears throat> first of all, I, the way, and uh, I, I must praise this, the positive side of Nollywood, the way uh, Nigerians took to the media, to that uh, to that medium of film, mm. uh, is really very remarkable. And for me, but for me, not too surprising. Uh, yeah, we can debate the quality from here to eternity, but the the way it was adapted, like a kind of just uh, extension mm. of the narrative, like yeah. storytelling, right. all right. storytelling, or occasionally even. Uh, painting, uh, it's really remarkable. And that has enabled, uh, in fact, the the, um, the improvement in quality. Experimentation right. also began. Uh, a greater consciousness of aesthetics, which right. I think derived also from traditional art uh, forms. I'm talking about even those horror uh, scenes, uh, where special effects, right. sometimes it's comic, ridiculous but right. you can actually see what is being attempted right and of course a few films have come out of it right. but i don't think that it signals the the death of theater right. Uh, right. no there's quite a lot of uh, uh, uh impressive theater uh, coming out the problem i find with many uh, play uh, playwrights would be playwrights maybe is that they think that once they've scribbled something down, it's ready to be performed, or right. in some cases even printed. <laughs> right. And they're so impatient, they're convinced that the the work requires no further. For instance, uh, when I was preparing, uh, looking at scripts for this uh, festival, ongoing festival. Uh, this young man, if I'm more than one, one, two, three, at least three of them, but this one I remember most. And his play had such promise that I offered him a residency in, you know, I run this small foundation, kind of residency for young writers and so on. And I offered him a residency. I said, you know, what you can do? Why do go into residence, everything on the house and so on. And I'll even get you um, a, a sort of dramaturge to can, whom you can consult if you need, if you need him and so on. And uh, he looked miffed, uh, <laughs> almost insulted. <laughs> I had to apologize. I said, listen, um, this play I, is not ready for me to recommend for staging but i think if you had a week to yourself two weeks even or three and you (laughs) i see the gentle increase (laughs) (laughs) i had somebody 
against whom you can bounce your ideas right. if you need. It was a right. composite. Right. Uh, it's all yours. That's all. Right. That's all I can say. He came, he stayed for about three days, packed his bags and just left yeah. and uh, complained that I refused to, to stage his play and uh, that he had no time for me. I, that kind of attitude. I, I would have given anything to have been offered him in three days, full board, you know, right. uh, a bit of wine on top, you know, or beer. <laughs> da, da, da. In my youth, I would have been so happy to just stay and work on that. Right. But there's a kind of, I guess, an eagerness, which is on, its, on one side not a bad thing, but a lack of consciousness or uh, a lack of consciousness of the need for self-criticism right. and even right. consulting, you know, right. other even your own peers, your own colleagues. Let's read this play together. When I wrote, uh, I wrote Death and Against Horseman, for instance, I recruited uh, some of my students. I said, come. Come and read this with me. I want to hear it right. to know right. where it sounds right and so on and so forth. For me, it is the most natural thing to do. Right. But the uh, it's a pity, however, that Nollywood, etc., the cinema industry has knocked out the traveling theater. Right. The traveling theater, the so-called Yoruba folk opera. Back from I the mean, days of Ogunde. Yeah, you know, this yes. was lively. Yes. This yes. was it was an event on its own right. beyond theater. Right. It was uh, it was also sociology. I mean, the, right. the company would arrive in a lorry in the morning, right. dancing with the actors inside, uh, gyrating, and, and that way they would mobilize audiences. Uh, distribute leaflets or just announce well, this is where we'll be tonight, and the crowd would, the audience would, uh, would flock in there. Right. And uh, there was a kind, there's a, there's a live, a liveliness about a vitality, a, a kind of uh, art in the making, the right. interaction between the uh, actors, the performers, and the audience. Well, all that, I'm afraid, is lost. That is what I miss most. Right. That's what I miss. Yeah, we, we, um, we've encountered that a lot, I think, because we working through the African Poetry Book Fund, Kwame and I, we, we publish every year a chapbook, uh, a, a box of chapbooks of poetry and then individual books. And the most difficult young writers to work with sometimes are, are Nigerian. But it's, it's, you know, it's because we're so good. We, we don't need help. Um, oh, okay. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I, but I think there's also that, that you know, there, there was um, the notion of craft that you're talking about, the notion of apprenticeship. Uh, disappeared largely, I think, around the, the 1980s for a lot of people. So mm -hmm. a lot of the young people growing up had no idea uh, about theatre, how, how much theatre is really uh, communal in that way. And mm -hmm. Nollywood, I, I remember I was asked to, uh, I got a call to write a Nollywood script once, and, uh, and the guy wanted it in a week. And so I said, ah, chief, a week? He's like, ah, it's very simple. I do, this is all I need from you. One vampire. <laughs> one coffin, two accidents, <laughs> and a witch. And you do what you want with that. <laughs> <laughs> and this is, I was thought about that. Uh, but the, no, but there is that that notion of the, the of the inventiveness of medium and how over time that that sort of begins to produce mm -hmm. a much more elevated mm -hmm. sort of form in that way. But I, at the same time, I. I think Nollywood has a certain appeal for its own kitschiness in a way, mm -hmm. but also it, it occupies that straight to video. It's something like the Steven Seagal movies here that go, mm -hmm. you know, sorry, Steven, ah. I'm never going to work in Hollywood again, kind mm -hmm. of thing. But mm -hmm. you know what I mean? There's a function to them mm -hmm. in that way, and I don't know yeah. if, yeah. But there's also a factor which I don't want us to underestimate the economics. Right. 
I had this incredible experience. Uh, I traveled on a plane between Lagos and Rome. Okay, and there was a young man who was from the East. This is many years ago at the beginning. And he had four heavy suitcases. And I asked him, you know, what he was doing. So he said he had come to distribute films. I said, distribute films? What films? I'm talking about at least 15 years ago. What films? And then he said, no, oh, it's packages of films. There's a distributor waiting for me in Turin. When I arrive, I go to Turin. He waits, he collects the, all these, the latest videos. He, says he, he said he made that trip twice a week. Mm -hmm. You fly from Nigeria to uh, Rome, then Turin, leave the films, collect his money, buy shoes mm -hmm. and clothing and little bit things okay. and uh, return to Nigeria. Sell his them. distributor is waiting there. <laughs> he delivers that, collects his money, uses the money to buy more the letters. So twice a week he made that trip. He was looking very well. Yes. And and I know he was taking care of a number of people, you right. know, we spoke. After that I toned down my criticism of Nollywood for a long time. Right. I, I didn't dare open my mouth right. because this is somebody who'd found a line of business right. and it was it was work for actors, actresses, etc. I said, oh, before you get hoity-toity, make sure you're able to feed that man and his, <laughs> and his dependents before you open your mouth again to criticize. It's yeah, it's a remarkable economy of scale too because the funding, there's, it's almost like from all the alahajis, they have 40 days mm -hmm. to turn it around. Uh, it's remarkable. It's happening now with, with publishing. There are more and more indigenous companies publishing books. Mm -hmm. and publishing is, uh, is the, the, well, these are difficult times in Nigeria. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a robust uh, local publishing at one time, but it's been going down mm -hmm. uh, lately, mm -hmm. I find. I know that my publisher is, uh, is getting more and more, shall we say, nervous about books which mm -hmm. brings out simply because people are not buying books so much. And the books are being pirated apparently. Oh, uh -huh. This is the only country in the world where books are pirated. <sighs> I once when I was moving from Los Angeles to, 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 to Chicago, I had a beautiful crate of books outside my house and I said with a note to help yourself. I came out half an hour later, the books were stacked nicely but the crate was gone. <laughs> 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 so, I mean, I, 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 Brother Jero, The Lion and the Jewel, right. I mean, I've even been offered copies of my own book, you know, yeah. you know, you know the traffic jam where they sell right. books and so on. Yeah. I've been offered pirated copies of my book. I looked at this miserable thing, said, <laughs> look at what I've become. <laughs> <laughs> Nigeria is a very enterprising. You must say. Extremely enterprising. You have to admire that streak. But tell me something else. Uh, tell me now. Uh, I've always wanted to ask you about that. And I deliberately uh, raised it. Have you been back in Nigeria? Uh, because the when I asked for you not so long ago, somebody told me that you, you had become what have become in relation to what's happening here, mm -hmm. you know, sort of 
completely that you'd given up on Nigeria, mm -hmm. totally and completely, mm -hmm. and that the experience which you had, you know, during the war mm -hmm. and all that had just completely made you mm -hmm. off Nigeria from mm -hmm. your uh, from mm -hmm. your landscape, general mm -hmm. landscape. I want you to speak a bit about you that. Let me right? speak to that. Um, well, you know, being Nigerian is like being Catholic. You can never not be Nigerian. You're always in recovery. So you can leave Nigeria, but Nigeria won't leave you. Um, but I was, I was there last November. Was it last November? With uh -oh. some of these nefarious characters here. <laughs> and um, I went for the Ake Festival. But I hadn't been back for, for, for multiple reasons. So I left. Um, when, I, when I left, I left around my youth service. Um, and then I came back and did my passing up. I was the parade commander. You know, can you imagine me? They used to call me Saddam. You know. Um, <laughs> so after my national service, uh, so progressively, just on a personal level, things had gotten very di difficult financially in Nigeria for most mm -hmm. people. My mother was English, so most of us had left. Uh, and I wanted to stay, but difficulties with my father, it was getting to a point where one of us would harm the other one quite badly. Um, and I'm, I'm not being facetious about that. So I left, and then, and then I, I sort of moved to England. And every time I, I try to re-engage with the community, it just, it just, there was just this endless frustration. Every, everything would start. You'd sort of try to inter have these interventions that would build up and then collapse. And after a while, I thought my heart can't take this anymore. Hmm. I'm as heartbroken as my father was, I think. By, by, I grew up, and instead of I occupy, I'm sometimes lumped with a different generation of writers, like uh, the more younger ones. But I, I, I grew up in, I grew up in a Nigeria where there was Leventis and Kingsway and telephones. And uh, when, when my first novel was published by Dili Bonyama Delta in, in '83, I got an advance of 700 naira. I bought a first-class ticket to London for 700 naira, and then four years later, it was 40,000 naira. You know, so I, I sort of started to get more and more disillusioned. And then with the, with my, my, the rest of my family living in England, it just seemed less and less desire to return. But in, through the diaspora, my work is always engaging with that. Uh, my religious practice engages with that. But I went back, finally I went back for I came, uh, and that had been 22 years. And I went back and I thought, this is going to be a culture shock. And I worked in, walked into Motala Mohammed Airport. Oga, I swear. The same chairs that were there when I left. <laughs> this, it, they, they hadn't even bothered to paint it. And I walked in and I thought, well, you know, because everyone, my brothers live there. I have my two other brothers. Mark, my brother, was an advisor for Jonathan Goodluck for a while. And then, you know, they all run consult. They live there. And it's always like, ah, you're not coming back. What's wrong with you? Um, so finally I went back. It's different. It's different. Internet banking everywhere is so different. <laughs> I went back and I, I, at the airport, it was not different. Like, I didn't, need, I didn't feel like a foreigner. As soon as the guy stopped me from my yellow fever vaccination card, I switched straight back into the, ah, no more wish one now. You know, and, and it was sort of, I just thought, that, in a way, it was sort of anticlimactic. I, I just, in a way, I feel bad because I stayed away for so long. And when I went to what was supposed to have changed, that there are things that have changed in terms of democratic practice, mm -hmm. um, which is a phenomenal thing. Mm -hmm. um, and there are problems with that, as with every democracy, as we see from yesterday. But, but more, more and more, I, just, I had felt heartbroken. But I'm always able to, I, this year I was supposed to be at Ake, but I couldn't, I had other conflicts. Some have confirmed with Lola, I'll be there next year. Mm -hmm. um, and we, I public, I work with young writers from Nigeria all the time. There's a lot of mentorship. So I'm definitely involved. Um, but I, I don't have a house there, much to my family's shame. 
Um, mm. Even mm. though there's like 17 houses that belong to mm. the Abanis, you know, mm. have a compound. Mm. Um, so I don't, I, don't, I don't think it's that. I think that part of my difficulty has always been that I, my sensibilities, even my interests as a writer, uh, had always marked me mm. somewhat at conflict all the time mm. with a very masochistic um, and, and a kind of machismo that I didn't really want to participate mm-hmm. in, in a way. But mm. I, I speak Yoruba badly. I speak mostly liturgical Yoruba, <laughs> but Igbo fluently, every dialect of Igbo, mm. and every kind of pigeon, from Wari mm. pigeon to, mm-hmm. you know. So yeah. I'm definitely involved in that way, but, but mm. more bodily at a distance in a way. That, does that answer it's the question? It's the easiest thing in the world, I think, to become alienated, you know, physically, viscerally, even mentally. Uh, alienated from a society like Nigeria, it's a it's a it's a difficult country. Rich, you know, just gifted in many ways. Yeah. But it's for me, it's the certain small things mm-hmm. which happened. For instance, during my own, uh, during those years of problems and so on, when I even had to go. Uh, into what I call um, political sabbatical, uh, because <laughs> I refused. I refused always. I refused constantly to accept that I was in exile. Right. And so I said, yeah. oh, I'm just on a political sabbatical. Yeah. I may stretch it a bit longer than I planned, but uh, you know, it's the same thing applies with academia. Okay. Uh, just small, small things like uh, which happened, which made it, which stopped. <clears throat> me from you know, actually becoming totally alienated. I'll, I'll tell you one instance. During the Abacha period, mm-hmm. the Abacha period, uh, very difficult uh, period. While I was away, for instance, uh, um, and the this butchering, uh, butchery of a, of a, gov- a government was hunting me all over the place mm-hmm. and looking for my mail and so on. In the post office, the post office, the postal workers took my mail, anytime mail was there, stored everything in jute bags, which they hid under one of the counters there, so that when I returned from exile, I had to go through jute bags of mail, all stacked up, which they had kept meticulously, mm-hmm. including some outdated checks. <laughs> which I now had to work on. <laughs> the second one, among many others, but mm-hmm. two which stuck out uh, in Before I even left, mm-hmm. you may remember that the police helicopters used to come and buzz mm-hmm. my house looking for where it actually was situated right. in the forest. Right. Because <clears throat> when they came on foot, the, the villagers who were nearby always directed them the wrong way. That's another right. one. That's another one. Yeah. Not to mention your pet alligators. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but when I returned, um, a policeman, I went to um, the, I went to some office where, mm-hmm. uh, which is near uh, where the police station that took care of the uh, Alausa, the government house was. And uh, a policeman came out and uh, said, Oga wanted to see me. Uh, that they'd been looking, he, that particular man, had been looking for me, and that he'd even told my son that any time I came in that area, I should please drop by. So on this occasion, so he saw me, I wasn't going to drop by, and he came, I went in there. And 
the guy who wanted to see me was not, as we say, on seat at the time. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but his juniors were following instructions. And I said, where is this man? Where, where is he? Where is the fellow? Oh, please, he'll be on his way. He went to our papa and he'll be back shortly. We phoned him that you're here. I said, well, why don't we make it another time? Um, I'll just go away and when it's convenient. I phoned, said, please, he's on his way. 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40. Ah, I said, just a minute. I'm leaving. I said, ah, please, you, you can't go. You can't. I said, am I under arrest? What's going on here? Mm-hmm. Abata has gone. Mm-hmm. I can't even move near a police station again. What's the problem? <laughs> so eventually, the man came panting, panting, panting. And he said, you don't know me. I said, no. He said, well, I was one of the police officers in the helicopter, which is to come and buzz oh, yeah. your, your house. And uh, it was the most unhappy uh, period for me. that We had to do that and harass you and so on and so forth. And I've said that any time I met you, I must apologize. Oh, wow. And uh, also, I've kept a gift for you. Okay. Where's the gift? So he went to his office and brought out. He said, I heard you're a hunter. I said, well, it's one of my hobbies. He said, yes, because we were told very often you disappeared into the bush. Mm-hmm. He brought me a gun. As a policeman. Wow. Kept the gift of a gun to me. <clears throat> Is it Give a good that, gun? Please, yeah. So with my apologies. And he said, I'll get you the license as well. Right. <laughs> to, <Right>. make sure, <laughs> to make sure you're legitimate. Right. There were... Little incidents like that, right. which I was seize every opportunity to point out right. that even in the bleakest of times, right. you know, we know there's always resistance, right. always resistance, and in the most unsuspected and right. unlikely uh, places. Right. In fact, it was the police also who finally came and told me, "Listen, it's time you split, because right. yes. otherwise we'll be the one who come for you." Come and get you. And uh, that's why um, uh, I think any time I travel, I, I have this contradiction. I can't wait to get back. Right, right. And yet, after so many days in that place, going through the traffic, mm-hmm. um, just trying to get water to flow in your right. something else. I said, listen, about time I went on another, I wish another dictator would come so I can go on a, on a okay. long sabbatical <laughs> with, with good reason. Right, right. It's, it's a complicated it, uh, uh, country, I must say. It is complicated. And, and also, I mean, I did, I, so, and for me, there, there are just all kinds of complicated, not so much wounds, because that's not the word for it, but, but disappointments. Um, so, for instance, a, a small town, Afiko, is right by the Cross River, mm. and we're 17 miles from Cameroon. So, after Mortala Mohammed, after Dimka's coup against mm. Mortala, he ends up in my town. Right? He comes, it's through Afiko that he's trying to leave the country to, into Cameroon. Mm. He's arrested in a, in a motel, and the woman with him, the young woman with him, is my cousin, Ugo. Until today, her name is Ugo Dimka. And the shame that was brought upon, she was like maybe 17, never was able to get married, never had a life. It was completely destroyed by this one thing. So there are all these, I grew up with the, my father's a principal of McGregor High School, and the army cantonment was in Amasere, all houses. There was this roadblock, 
And every time we would come to the roadblock, you'd have to disembark from the car. And these soldiers, you know, they would, in the, they would pretend to search. You know, they would fondle my mother. They would fondle my cousins. They would humiliate my father. Uh, there was a howitzer pointed at our house. All, all sorts, you know, so I, there are things that happen to you when you're very young that I, was, I played in blown up, uh, blown up uh, tanks. I remember picking, my cousin picked up a grenade and we were tossing it and he lost his hand, you know. So there are all these things that, that were difficult at the time. And to be layered into that place too, which was also complicated with, a, with having a white mother and all sorts of other kinds of um, things that I never wanted to leave. But I think by the time I had I was in youth service. I, I was just, when I was doing my national service, you know, I just thought I, I can't anymore. I can't. So I took my own sabbatical. And then that's about every time I tried to return, the sabbatical would there would always be something that would go dramatically wrong on a personal level, on a political level. But I think I turn I turned fifty in in a in a month. And mm -hmm. I think that there's been that urge to return. And I'll definitely be making more and more pilgrimage, but I was so disenchanted with the whole thing that I didn't even go for my own father's funeral. And that has been one thing that has sort of stayed with me in that way. But um, you, you have, you're, you're hardier in that way. And also, I think your generation fought for Nigeria's, your, your, your mother was part of the people who fought for the independence. Mm -hmm. And I think your generation, which is my father, they, there's a bigger stake in the country. Mm -hmm. And we were sort of the generation that sort of just disappeared. Mm -hmm. So even in terms of writers, I'm somewhere between uh, uh, the whole Paysetter series of the 80s mm -hmm. and Festusi Yayi's generation and Chimamanda's generation. And there were a bunch of us that nobody even, in fact, the whole Festus generation has been forgotten as though, you know, that, that isn't that. So there are, all, there are all those really, for me, profound difficulties. And I just found that I was working better when I wasn't in Nigeria. And even in Nigeria, I would produce literature that was never... You know, my first novel, Masters of the Board, mm -hmm. happens all over the world, in Brazil. And so from the beginning, I've always had that kind of um, mm -hmm. uh, left mm -hmm. turn to it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I'm, I'm going back more and more. And Frankie here is keeping me honest about that. So, um, <coughs> but it's also interesting that when I go, when I go to Nigeria, I'm more Nigerian than all the Nigerians that I meet. You know, because they're all, all middle-class Nigerians, and you know they, they like to speak for them. You're more Nigerian than northern uh, Nigerians. Ah, uh, <coughs> you who can't even pronounce my Yoruba was uh, properly. Uh, but you've been murdering, you've been murdering Ibako and so on. In Asuibo, in Asuibo, in Asuibo. So I, I was there, and then sort of, you know, even like the ethnicities that have been replaced with complicated um, uh, religious identities in a certain kind of way. But you know, there's all these, all these. Lagosians who've never actually mm -hmm. seen anything mm -hmm. who so it's always that thing about you know Nigerians always want to tell you how to be a Nigerian and uh, you know and they don't hesitate I remember I mean this is a funny stuff when I was a kid I remember my brother Greg used to have long hair he was the biracial one that looked white mm -hmm. you know and they used to call him Jesus you know so <laughs> if you walk in I was like eight he was like 12 and they'll stop us this is your brother same mother same father mm -hmm. and I'm like yes they look at me oh what happened to you? <laughs> so, so those kinds of, and that's just the funny, but you know, there are darker sides mm. to a lot of that stuff. Mm. But segueing away from that, let's, let's talk a bit about books again. So one of the things, apart from your non-comparative imagination, all the things you do, one of the things that's always struck me is this complex mix of humility and generosity. Uh, I remember the first time I met you, I was, I was walking over like, you know, ah, it's Wale Shanka. And you're like, hi, I'm Wale. 
And that is not typical. You must understand that from Nigeria, but also of a, of a whole generation. Um, and I remember all the interventions you make, you, you read all the young writers' works. I still remember, and you may not even re realize this, but there, there was an event we all did at University of Las Vegas that you asked us to be part of. It was me, you, it was um, uh, Chimamanda Adichie, still Purple Hibiscus before Mega uh, Star. There was Alexander Fuller, and you had selected us because of all the different voices that we represented. And I remember overhearing a conversation um, about payment and you had gone out of your way to make sure that we were all paid the same. And that is, this is these small little things you do. Or that same evening, we were at a dinner in, um, in an Italian restaurant, Oibo Food. And across the table, you said to me, Chris, you want pepper? And I said, yes. Remember, you came around the table, took out your little container of really hot peppers, and put them in my food. <laughs> Um, but I, constantly, the fact that you read young writers, that you engage young writers, that you have the Wallace Schoenker Prize that has put people like Nadia Karafa on the map, someone who was doing sci-fi from Nigeria, which is unacceptable uh, to most people. Um, and here you were, once you give her that prize, it sort of legitimized her in these ways. Uh, there is the residencies you do, there are the festivals you do. I see you turn up at Victor Ehi's uh, art openings. So you're engaged in ways across generations. And I, I'm curious to know, it's not, there is a part of it that is about helping people. But I think there's also this real, that you're kind of in awe of beautiful art. Is that, is that, is that correct? Um. <clears throat> I, th I think part of the problem is that I wanted I wanted to be so many things as a child. <laughs> right. Um, even today, I call myself a frustrated musician. I call myself a, a frustrated architect. Right. Uh, especially since I built my own uh, house, then mm -hmm. I felt ah maybe I should go into architecture. Uh, my ambition. <clears throat> Having built one, mm -hmm. then of course you want to build others. Right. Uh, then, as I said earlier, there is, there, the, if there is a disjunct in one's existence, what one sees as a possibility, mm -hmm. and there is no movement towards even that right. Uh, right. possibility, or it's being frustrated at every turn. Right. Then you get a bit restless right. and aggressive right and perhaps one of the reasons i take an interest natural natural for me natural interest in young people is because i have a feeling that we a generation have somehow failed mm. the younger uh, generation yeah whether that's true or not i'm not sure because the readiness with which right. the younger generations succumb to blandishments right. uh, decide uh, to get a piece of the action no matter right. Right. at what cost to their own right. integrity right. <clears throat> uh the, it indicates very often that uh, they they had a, a yen in that direction anyway right but right. at the same time we had uh, a remarkable opportunity right. in nigeria Right. It was, it's, it's still, not it was, it's still a rich right. nation, materially. Right. Uh, whether we abandoned agriculture, you right. know, and now well, we became a mono uh, economy right. and dependent, uh, the victims uh, subjected to the uh, whims and caprices of the, uh, uh, the uh, capitalist world. The oil prices fall, everything falls. Right. 
there's no fallback uh, right. economy. Right. Such a simple one like uh, agriculture. And I know that we had certain opportunities which are closed right. to younger people today. And right. that pains me a lot. Right. Uh, also, the, um, there's a quality of existence. Forget richness, material richness. Right. There's a quality of existence right. at the, you know, in my, in right. my at least I, th I, I felt it. And I feel the difference between that and today. Right. You spoke about the degradation, for instance, of even um, you know places right. uh, which used to know in right. which you, you find the the law of uh, replacement simply does not apply, right. except of course when it's convenient for awarding uh, contracts, but right. just maintenance and so right. on, all these various things, and thereby uh, and, and even um, even human relationships. Mm -hmm. Human relationships. Who would have thought in my childhood mm -hmm. that kidnapping for right. ransom would become right. a business, right. a rampant, no matter how bad, how disastrous the economy is? Right. The, the idea of one person kidnapping another for right. ransom. Right. Right. It, it's, something has gone wrong, right. disastrously wrong. Right. And that makes me not feel guilty, but just. Uh, I feel compelled to, you know, to to move closer to the younger generation uh, right. instinctively. I don't set, I don't think about it in advance, but instinctively, right. maybe in an effort, desire to see that they don't despair, that they do not despair, right. and that somehow what we enjoyed and what inspired us, uh, and what much of which is still around us, is right. open and accessible to. Right. To them, I think that's right. that's really nothing, nothing sinister. Right. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Let's please. Um, so, um, apart from hunting, what do you do for fun? Do you still play the guitar? Because you did have a record. Oh uh, no! Can I, can, <coughs> I can still sing that record. I, I see. <laughs> I still it was a it was a hit on I, the radio. Well, at least <laughs> at least I waxed the record. Yes, uh -huh. I, I I have that <laughs> boast that I I know Nobel laureates who won for the most outstanding achievements. You know, physics, chemistry, uh, medicine, the whole lot, engineering. But not one, not one of them, to my best of my knowledge, has waxed the record. None of them are eligible yeah. for the Grammys. <laughs> In fact, as, as, as Bob Dylan won, won, won you should be, they should give you a Grammy since they gave him the Nobel. Uh, I said Nobel laureates <laughs> in literature, for instance, you know. Well, let's get into that. Well, let's, into, well, let's get into that argument. I've also written songs. I think I should be nominated for Emmy. Yes. But like, we won't go we won't go for is it, or is it grammar or it's grammar? Grammy. What is it they award them in the, in the music uh, field? But let me tell you what happened to my guitar. Uh, I still use it occasionally to compose songs for my uh, my plays. But at one stage, when I was a student in Leeds, I really wanted to study the classical guitar, and in fact, the guitar which I bought was the, the classical one. I was fascinated by the music of the guitar. And then um, a classical musician, Julian Bream, came to play at the university, give a small concert there. And I sat there and I watched him. I watched his fingers and I listened to the beauty of the music that was coming out of that guitar. Mm -hmm. 
I went home to the dormitory, took my guitar, put it in a box, locked it, <laughs> put it <laughs> under the bed. And, and that was the end of my uh, intended <laughs> musical career. <laughs> uh, oh, like the guitar music, classical uh, music from guitar, Segovia, and even the Spanish flamenco. Manitas de Plata and all that. Oh, I bought all the records and I just could listen to them for hours. Right. And then Julian Brim came and spoiled it and all for spoiled me. Spoiled it all for so you. We should handle him. But that, so what hobbies do I have? No, I just just taking my gun for a walk in the forest. That's you know, there's an odd phrase in taking uh, my gun for a walk. Yeah, yeah, because you don't get you don't necessarily get something each right. time. So no, that's true. And it's really just being in the forest, just yeah. being there, just sitting there, just contemplating there, just just being in the right. forest. That's really what I enjoy. Right. I enjoy the chase also, yes, but. Um, um, just being in the forest. Just being in the forest. That's what I like. I mean, come Okay. Any other torture questions? Torture questions. Are, there are many torture <laughs> questions. Um, and I think I, I, it's it's skirting back to the Nobel, but not in not in any of the divisive ways. Um, to be the first Black African. Probably even the well, is it the first black writer to win the Nobel mm. Prize? That has to have shifted. I mean, I, I sort of I try to imagine it as a writer and how you know terrifying the concept may be, and yet it has not daunted your production. Mm. You continue to put out work mm. that's 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 kind of continues to, and that's one of the things that's really admirable about you. It's like I, I I read an essay you did recently for I think two years ago for the story Moja, where you you sort of link. Uh, all of this humanitarian work being done by women in Kenya with, with the ecology of trees and these conflict. So your work is always moving in these really remarkable and surprising ways. And it hasn't seemed to have stopped you from experimenting, from playing. But how does it impact you? What does that even mean? Because mm. uh, you always say, I'm Wale. So there's Wale, and then there's Wale Schenker who won the Nobel Prize. How did you have to reconcile that? What does that mean to you? And let me tell you the story of my encounter with um, um, oh, Marquez, uh, Garcia Marquez. Garcia. We met in Cuba sometime uh, after the prize. And, uh, and he asked me, he said, hmm, how's, how's it going? How's it going? I said, well, hmm. uh, it'll be over very soon. It'll be over very soon. Um, next year, they'll choose a new beauty queen. <laughs> and then and then I can go rest. Right. And he said, it never stops. Mm. And he was right. You lose your anonymity, you lose your your leisure. There is um, there's always demand one reason or the other. In fact, the things get so bad sometimes that uh, I actually uh, feel happy when I'm mistaken for uh, Morgan Freeman. <laughs> <laughs> and you have the voice. <laughs> and they're looking and they're whispering, and I'm saying to myself, oh my God, here I go again. They're going to, they're going to come up to me and say, you must be the writer. No. You I said, Morgan Freeman, Freeman, can I have an autograph? <laughs> It got so bad that uh, they wouldn't believe me. That's the worst part of it. They just, I am not 
Mr. Morgan Freeman. In case he's listening now, please tell them that I am Wally Shoenka. It got so bad one day that I actually had to sign Morgan Freeman for a family before they, before they would <laughs> they leave, leave me alone. alone, because they refused to accept. Mm. And, they were, and they were describing, in fact, some, uh, a film I'd acted in, mm -hmm. and they said, how did you manage to get one moment you were on that side, and then you appeared on the other <laughs> in a totally different mood, and so on. I said, well, you know, we got trained for these things. You know. <laughs> uh, we, we go to school. <laughs> but no. You have to imagine, though, that Morgan uh, Freeman is being stopped in the street and going, are you Wale Shoinka? Uh, the, They're stopping Morgan Freeman and asking him, are you Wale Shoinka? Well, I hope that happens to him, too. <laughs> you know, and, and then let him try and sign my name. <laughs> see if he can get away with it. But, you know, I, I think that... Uh, um, Bernard Shaw had the real more—he uh, uh, encapsulated in what uh, his description of uh, his experience. He said he could forgive. He said, "I can forgive the devilish mind that uh, invented the dy invented dynamite." He said, but "It really must be a diabolical cast of mind that thought." of the Nobel Prize for Literature. <laughs> and I agree 100% with him. Yeah, it's, yeah. you know, it just, uh, because literature is about talking, so you think yeah. I, I, I must be able to talk about anything under, mean, under the sun. Right. But right. Uh, at the same time, that's not to say, I enjoy the money, only it's all gone. <laughs> uh, I know, it, it doesn't last it's very long. It didn't last, it didn't last at all. No. Too many, too many Clements, yeah. it didn't last. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I'm looking at the time and we're How are we doing? Yeah, we're knocking towards the oh, end. Yes, yes, uh, yeah. I did have a couple of questions here. I think we've addressed a couple of them indirectly, but I was going to throw it open if anyone wanted to ask a question. But I will say, if you do want to ask a question, don't make it a Nigerian question. And by that I mean, you know, ah, good evening, Mr. Shoenka. I just want to say it's 1965. I knew that time. And then like 30 minutes later, we're trying to figure out what the question is. So just keep it straight and direct. Yes, sir. I'm fudging a little because it's not really a question, Mr. Shoenka. Years ago, you appeared at Lincoln Center and you read your poem, Muhammad Ali at the Ringside. And I was so taken by the poem that an acquaintance I had at Lincoln Center gave me a copy on paper, typewritten. Not long thereafter, Muhammad Ali himself was having a book signing at the Barnes and Noble on Fifth Avenue, which is no longer there. And of course, he really was not signing because the Parkinson's disease had set in. I waited online outside and finally, it was my turn, and I said, I have a poem, Mr. Ali, written by Wally Shiyinka, the Nigerian Nobel Laureate in Literature. And his wife, who was nearby, said, I'll give it to him. And I said, no, I will. He was sitting at a table, as book signers generally do, and I put the poem down on the table in front of him. And I tell you, he read every single word. He stood up came around and kissed me on the cheek. Mr. Soyenka, that kiss was for you, not for me. Thank you. Thank you.
You want me to mm-hmm. give you the kiss? <laughs> any any other questions? I think I think we're good. Are we? Am, am I guessing that we're doing good? So um, we will be signing books outside. Please help me thank Wallace Schoenker for his kindness. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the New York Public Library podcast. If you like what you hear, subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And please leave us a review. It really helps us out a lot. You can follow NYPL on Twitter or Facebook and sign up for our newsletter at nypl.org.